Thank you. Thank you for that lovely infographic. Beautiful. Gerd Arnst, I believe, is a Dutch, famous Dutch infographer uh, from the 40s. Um, very beautiful. Thank you. So I work in London as a, a writer, designer, creative director, and recently my passion has become visualizing information. I think when you visualize information, you start to be able to see the patterns and the connections that matter. And I think if you take it one step further and you start designing that visual information so that it makes more sense or so that it tells a story or so that it allows us to focus on what really matters, then it can become a solution to this sense of information overload and data glut that we might all be suffering from. So I want to show you some of my work in this area. This is the billion dollar ogram. You might have seen this online. This image arose out of my frustration with the reporting of billion-dollar amounts in the press, in that they're reported as self-evident facts. 500 billion for this war, 50 billion for this pipeline. But really, these are actually mind-boggling mind -boggling amounts of money. They're kind of meaningless, unless they're put in relationship with, it, with other numbers of the same size. So here, I scraped uh, numbers from the Guardian, New York Times, press reports, and then scaled them according to the values. And the colors here represents the motivation behind the money. So um, green is earning money, uh, purple is war, red is giving money away. And you can see immediately you start to have a different relationship to these numbers. You're de-abstracted from them. You can start to see, you, well, you literally can see them. But more than that, you can start to see the connections between numbers that might otherwise have been reported. They're scattered across multiple news reports, and you would never have seen them together. Let me show you what I mean. Um, Second column down, green block, OPEC's revenue every year, $780 billion. And that little pixel in the corner, $3 billion, that's their climate change fund. Uh, Americans, incredibly generous people, they donate over $308 billion to charity every year, personally. Compare that with the foreign aid payments that the top 17 industrialized nations give to Africa and developing nations. That's $120 billion down here. And then perhaps the most dramatic, biggest one, the cost of the Iraq war, as predicted in 2003, was 60 billion. And as you see, it's mushroomed massively, along with the Afghanistan war, to 3,000 billion. And once you've got a tableau or a tree map, as this kind of diagram is called, you can start adding things on top of it, so you can start increasing your understanding. Um, try and imagine maybe for a moment how much the cost of the financial crisis, how much of this diagram might that take up, the credit crunch? Let's take a look. <laughs> exactly. Uh, that's the latest figure from the IMF, 12 trillion worldwide cost, just obliterates everything else on that map. And we can also, um, African debt, Africa is saddled with some debt to the West. Um, let's see how much of the diagram that takes up. There we go. Just 227 billion owed by Africa. And just recently I came across a study from the University of Ottawa about AIDS. And if we targeted AIDS in the developing world with a single kind of attack of funding and research, it would only cost us this much, 64 billion. So you'll be able to have it, by visualizing this information, you start to have a different relationship. You start to be able to see it. I did it for the UK budget. Slightly less interesting because it's about the UK, obviously, but it's also local. But I want to focus on the budget deficit. We're suffering a massive budget deficit in the um, UK, which is bigger. This is the budget deficit here. It's bigger than we earn from income tax, 152 million pounds. 
And what we can do also is pull that figure out and we can contextualize it. The budget deficit was a massive political issue, so all the, all the political parties rushed to advance their, their ways of plugging that gap. And as you can see, these are all the quoted methods that they decided they would fill it with, and you can see that none of them come close to filling that gap. But you kind of have to see that, because if you were reading, well, if we do this, it, costs, it will save us 13 billion, it sounds impressive, but when you see it in context, in relationship to that block, it's nothing. But for me, it's still kind of in the realm of abstraction, we're still in the realm of billions, and they're still hard to imagine. So I took the numbers from this budget, and I translated it into daily amounts. So I think daily expenditure is something we can all relate to. We probably don't know what we spend every year. We might know what we spend every month. We definitely know what we spend every day. And this is it. These are the same amounts translated into the average cost for taxpayer. So in the UK, we pay £2.93 a day for Scotland, uh, £9 for our health service, and 3 p a day for our museums. But now, by changing the units here, it becomes a different kind of prism. I can start having a different kind of relationship. I can start, again, seeing these numbers in a different way. And numbers are blinding. They're hard to imagine. I wonder if you can guess what this data set might be. What peaks twice a year? Uh, once just before Easter, and then two weeks before Christmas. These are great guesses. Uh, it flattens in the summer as well. So what do we get over here? Suicide. You might want to kill yourself. Candy. You might want to get some chocolate in, definitely. Any other guesses? Sorry? Postcards? Yeah, your friends might send you a card. Let's have a look. This is what it is. So we scraped 10,000 Facebook status updates for the phrase, we broke up because. And this was the pattern that was revealed. Here we go. Spring clean. Every Monday, people coming out of bad weekends. Flattens out in the summer, because nobody wants to be in a relationship in the summer, right? And then the lowest day of the year is Christmas Day. Who would do that? So cruel. So this, this information was just sitting out there, right, waiting for the right question to be asked of it. And I, I'm working as a data journalist at the moment, and I hear this phrase a lot, data is the new oil. It's like some ubiquitous resource that we're all generating and then we can mine it for insights. But for me, I feel like it's, uh, I'd like, I modify that phrase to data is the new soil. It feels like a fertile, creative medium, something we can mold and start shaping and, and, and delving into to, to produce creative results. Um, so it's that kind of landscape. Let me show you another landscape. Imagine in your minds what a landscape of the world's fears might look like. This is it. Mountains out of molehills. I'm going to label this for you. This is a timeline of global media scare stories as repeated and as reported in the media. So the intensity, the, the height here is the intensity of each story. So how much that story has been reported, how many stories contain certain keywords. Let me show you. This pinky here, swine flu. Yellow, bird flu. One more along, SARS. Do you remember that one? This grey little spike here is the Millennium Bug. Um, these green chips in the foreground, asteroid collisions. And the blue little nodules in the front, killer wasps. 
So this is the shape and the rise and fall of these stories as they come and go in the media. And it's odd because uh, I just did it because I thought, oh, I wonder if there's a pattern. And there is. There's an odd pattern in here that you can only see when you visualize it. Let me highlight it for you. Okay, this is the pattern for violent video games. And you can see there's a strange regular shape to it. Twin peaks every year. So if you look closer, even something even weirder is revealed. Those peaks occur at the same months every year. So in November and April, we have this upsurge in concern about violent video games. Or well, why? Right, so November, Christmas, big games releases, upsurge in content, worry about the content. But April, there are some games releases in April, but something else happened in April. Something else pushes that story up in the agenda every single year, though it's diminishing a little bit. What's that? Exactly right. Columbine tragedy in April 1999, closely associated with violent video games. And since then, anniversaries, court cases, retrospectives. And those stories have become intertwined, and now they, they emerge together. This is the correlation using uh, Google Insights. You can see how they just completely fold in. Those peaks are the, anniversary, the various anniversaries of Columbine. I think 5, 8, and 10, 10th anniversary. So we're... We remember, this, is, this is the media remembering Columbine and then associating it with violent video games. And there's another pattern in this thing as well. Let's have a look. Can you see, when I was doing this, I didn't notice it until I was doing the slide when I first created it. There's a gap that affects all the stories. Exactly. 9-11, when we had something very real to be scared about. So you can mine data for ideas. You can see, start to see patterns that you wouldn't otherwise see that might pass you by. I also love... Kind of recreationally, I like painting with data. So, it's a, like I said, it's a creative medium, so why not paint with it? These are the top search terms from around the web. Zeitgeist, you know Google Zeitgeist, they do um, every year the top search terms. I'm going to zoom in for you. This was the landscape in 2006. Back in the good old days, uh, in the UK we had Big Brother dominating our culture. Uh, the Page Jaune in France was still a viable information source. Um, and Juventus was ruling the Italian football leagues. We switched to 2008. Yeah, it's all changed. Facebook is beginning to, to rise up. YouTube is taking over French culture. And uh, Roma is now leading the leagues. 2009, Facebook is rising to dominate. Now, um, Google released this every year as a table or a web page, but if you create, make it into a landscape, it becomes something you can explore with your eyes, just something more interesting and just something you can make your own patterns and connections with. And you see a lot of variety here conceptually. Obviously, you've got different languages, but conceptually, conceptually there's more variety. If you look at United Search Terms of America, contrast, not quite so much. I think lyrics, Facebook, and YouTube, pretty much it. So, <laughs> data is something you can create images with. You can think about representing stuff in a more interesting way. It's also a way in which you can use, as, use it as a lens to correct your vision or see things differently. Let me tell you this. Easy question. Who has the biggest military budget in the world? United States. Oh, Israel. Controversial. Uh, uh, Israel, it is. Um, sorry, United States, it is. It's massive, in fact, 607 billion in 2008. So massive that it can contain all the other top military budgets, top 10, inside itself. There's some other numbers for context there. But is it true? Is it really true that America has the largest military budget? Because if you think about it, America is a vastly rich country. It's enormously wealthy. In fact, it's so wealthy it can contain the top 
for industrialized nations' economies inside itself. So it's bound to have a much larger military budget, a disproportionately larger military budget. So to be fair, really, you should, it should be normalized. That data should be changed relative to the amount each country earns. And then we see a truer picture. So let's do that to those, those numbers. So this is the picture when you do it as a percentage of GDP. Suddenly, these other countries spring into view, and America drops to eighth, the UK there in, in, in 29th. You can see it's a different picture, and then it creates more questions. Well, why Myanmar? You can, well, it's a military dictatorship. Jordan, why is Jordan spending so much on its military? And so on. So it's journalistically, it becomes a kind of investigation. You can do the same to, um, to soldiers, who has the biggest army in the world. China, of course, massive, 2.1 million. And again, that might chime with your perception of China as a military machine, you know, ready to pounce, ready to, to fight the West or ready to suppress its own people. Um, but as a proportion of population, let's see the difference. So it completely changes. In fact, China plummets to 124th. It has a tiny army for its size. And in fact, these other countries, again, spring into view, some obvious, some less so. So here the data has changed our perspective, changed our view of how we might normally perceive things. Um, I just want to talk a little bit about myself. Um, I wonder, uh, like, uh, you know, information is beautiful, and I wonder if I can make my life beautiful. Uh, this is my visual CV. Uh, I'm not quite sure I've succeeded. It's quite blocky, and uh, the colors are a bit manky. Uh, but I wanted just to give you a picture of my background to make an important point. As you can see, I was a programmer when I was a kid. That little gap there represents when I lost my programming ability. Part of my brain, I'm afraid, was left in a field somewhere. Um, so now I understand programming, but I don't do it. Um, I've been a journalist for many years. I first wrote about video games, and now I write for newspapers and magazines, Guardian and Wired magazine. Uh, I got into websites. I love web, the dynamic aspects of it and community. I was an advertising copywriter for 10 years freelance, and it's a great conceptual discipline. Don't know how many of you have worked in advertising, but you know, it, it has its failings, but it's, it's good for creative, tight creativity. And then only recently have I been a designer. I've only been designing for four years. Uh, can I just take a little straw poll as well? Because I've done all this work over the years, but there's one thing I'm most famous for. I want to see, put your hands up if you recognize this. Okay. That's about 25. That is probably the highest proportion I've ever seen. I developed this back in 2000. It became like this mad viral game. I'm just curious if you know what it is. Okay, so uh, <laughs> I've been designing for only four years. Uh, I've never trained as a designer. I've never been to art school. Uh, I just picked it up. I just wanted to do it. Um, it was a weird thing happened when I started designing. I found that I already knew how to do it. Not in the sense of, like, I was already brilliant at it, but more like I understood the notions of grids and space and color and alignment. And I feel like I'd absorbed those rules in some way from being exposed to all this media and having to work with all this media informally over the years. And I don't feel like I'm unique. I feel like that could be happening to all of us. Looking at the web every day, it's almost like we're imbibing information design. We're imbibing design, and it's fueling a kind of design literacy where... It, we're expecting our information to be visual in some way and to be condensed and to use color and typography. It's, it's, it feels like a necessity. And in a, in a world of information overload, coming across a beautiful infographic or a beautiful design is like coming across a clearing in the jungle. It's actually quite relaxing. To, to look at an image is just effortless. It just literally pours in. 
And more than that, the eye is exquisitely sensitive to variations in color and space and shape. It's, this is the language of the eye. And if you combine it with the language of the mind, which is about text and ideas and concepts, you're able to perhaps start speaking two different languages simultaneously, both enhancing the meaning of the other. Let me show you what I mean. Okay, I did this diagram last week. I don't know if many of you saw it. It's depicting the mess of lawsuits that occur in the telecoms uh, world. And you'll see it's just, you know, it's too detailed for a, a presentation, but it's supposed to be kind of a bit hectic, so you feel it. Okay, there's two layers going on here. There's a conceptual layer, and then there's a kind of relational uh, language of the eye layer, if you like. So these little bubbles explain what each lawsuit. So I can strip those away. And what I've done is I've scaled the units, Samsung, Google, and so on, according to um, revenue. So these country, the, each, each company's revenue. And the colors indicate whether that revenue is decreasing year on year or increasing. So now you can see a different pattern that you perhaps couldn't see if I was trying to explain to you an article. Is there a relationship between decreasing revenue and lawsuits? Your eye can tell that straight away. It's instantaneous. Yes, you can see that. Is there a relationship between size of a company and its um, litigiousness as well? Yes, you can see that as well. So that's what I mean. There's two layers of this going on. You see this, you can read the explanation, you can get on that level, but also you can see another dimension that only your eye can really perceive. And it's all about what you can see in there is the relationship between separate elements, the relationship between things, and that's what the eye loves, relationships. Relationships are beautiful. Might be the name of my next book. <laughs> um, so I'm having a lot of fun doing this stuff. I have a website, Information is Beautiful, um, and I'm doing, churning these out every couple of days. And I've found that when you start to visualize information, magical, unexpected, bizarre, interesting things start to happen. Let me just show you some of them. Um, information visualization is really great for overlaying data. Like I said before, you can't always see stuff. In the UK, and I was talking to some people yesterday, and apparently here too, there's been a rise in the right wing. And here's the, the high, areas of high membership of right wing parties in the UK. And these are areas of high uh, non-white populations in the UK. So what happens when you overlay them? Anything? Can we see any correlation? Can we start to see any new patterns? So we overlay them. We use the simple color techniques of purple is the overlay. And we start to see an interesting pattern. Um, some of these are expected areas. In, nor in the north of uh, England, it's, it's quite uh, areas of deprivation, and there's been a lot of racial tension in those areas. In the south, there are lots of uh, areas of um, non-white populations and surrounded by areas of uh, high right-wing party membership. And what's happening there is that white flight to people moving out of those areas and people looking in and being scared. Again, it's like a pattern you couldn't necessarily see from a spreadsheet. You have to visualize it and overlay them to see if there's any correlation. You can get really good overviews in visualization as well. This isn't my data. This is from a great site called Land Art Generator. And here you can see, oh, it's a bit dark. I'm sorry. This is the amount of surface area of the world required to, we would need to power the world with solar power. As you can see, these are, thank you. These are still vast areas, but you get a sense. And you can also compare it to wind power. So this is it for wind power. So again, you can see in an instant the scales, what the challenge might be facing us for getting these technologies going. So you can take a, a wide-up planetary view, or you can zoom right into a statistic and, and pluck some little demographic, a little bit of data that perhaps tells a, a little story about something. This is Twitter, obviously, um, the latest data. Actually, no, it's about six months old, so it may have, demographics may have changed slightly. You can see um, um, 
Well, you can make up your own minds about that. Uh, and sometimes you can even let the data structure itself. So uh, this is the meanings of different colors in different cultures. It's a little intense for you to read right now. But it's, in here, we just I just researched all these meanings. What, what color is, is the color of fun or the color of style, the color of power in uh, Chinese culture or Native American or Western culture? And then just let it structure itself, let it just play out. And it's interesting because then you can see which colors are actually agreed upon across cultures. And there are only four mainly the extremes. Passion and anger are red pretty much consistently across all cultures. Purity is white and death is black. I'm a bit of a health nut um, and I'm very frustrated by uh, the reporting about nutritional supplements. Should I be taking vitamin A, vitamin D, vitamin B, vitamin C, vitamin K every day? Should I be having wheatgrass shots? You know, it's just, it seems every day a different study is coming out. So I took all the evidence, literally all of it, scrapes it off PubMed, this huge medical database, and then visualized it. So this is, um, this kind of visualization is called a balloon race. So the higher up the diagram, the more evidence there is for a given supplement. And the size of the bubble here corresponds to its popularity as regards to uh, Google searches. So when you've scaled this across, these are human-only trials, by the way. We, did, we went through a tight methodology to make it work. So you can draw a line. You can say, well, these supplements are worth taking for the conditions listed in the bubbles or worth you investigating anyway and then these are less less worth it if you like the evidence levels here are um, no evidence slight evidence and conflicting evidence and this is another aspect of visualization I want to point out here this was a huge amount of work this took me and a, a, my researcher over a month to gather all this information, grade it, and scale it. But it's only fit, it's squeezed down into just one single image. It's like a, a form of visual or a form of knowledge compression. I managed to get so much information on top of this, um, on, into this article. And it also is difficult to, I'm finding it, I'm having trouble sort of presenting it to you, I'm having to cut it in half, because data visualizations, there's a tendency for them to yearn to be big. You know, you want, you, want them, you want them on the walls. You want them kind of huge so you can kind of take time to examine and play and look at them. And just, an, just a little tip if you're thinking about getting involved. I've done an interactive version of this thing, and this is the other great thing about um, curating data and really taking time to build the data before you design. All this data that you see in the diagram is in a Google spreadsheet, which is completely open on my website, so you can go and have a look. I'm just going to flip out of this for a second and show you this interactive. So we did an interactive version. We just took that data and rolled it into a Flash app. It sits online. You can visit it. It's completely free. And um, you can just roll over and see. But you can also filter out. So you can say, just show me the stuff for diabetes. Just show me the stuff for cancer and so on. So you just get added, added value. But this Flash app is linked. It's exp expresses and generates itself from that Google spreadsheet. So it means I can just, any new evidence come out or I think somebody points out a mistake I've made, I can just change a cell in that spreadsheet, and it'll instantly ripple and change online. So the data here has become alive. You know, it's, it's no longer a static image that's going to sit there. This data can now be updated all the time and go on for years and years. Just get my keynote back. Yep, there's a spready. 
Um, so I've done a lot, I've been doing a lot of these, and I'm a bit of an evangelicist, and I think it's really awesome to do infographics and information designs, but there are some failings, mostly mine, so I want to share some with you so that you don't fall into that little pitfall. You'll see a lot of these around. Uh, the technical term for this is spaghetti. This is when you, visual, you take data and you visualize it, but you don't use a story or a concept to somehow shape it or threshold it or draw something out of it, so you just get a load of splurge. In my mind, information design is about relieving information overload, not increasing it. Um, circular diagrams, this is one of mine. Um, this is somebody, one by an even better designer than me, of course. Uh, but I don't know how, much you, how many of you are into usability, but from a usability point of view, this sucks. And often you'll get this result when you, you're tempted as a designer just to do something incredibly gorgeous, and circles just look harmonic and beautiful, but they're actually incredibly difficult to get the information out of here. Here, I wondered, you know, I simply cannot tell. This is about the different moral perspectives of religions. Um, you just can't get it out. It's just, it's just annoying. There's, this is too much information in a more of a graphic sense. Cartograms, you may have seen these. This is where the continents are scaled according to the data set underlying it. This one actually isn't too bad because the data is quite dramatic. But it's hard to tell. Again, hard to get any information out. Is Italy bigger than the UK in this? You can't really tell. And I actually personally think they look quite ugly. So just a personal issue. <laughs> Here I thought, well, can I sum up all the world's religions in just a tweet um, and sum up all the, how many adherents and followers they have? And what, what I've done here is that it's almost like I haven't taken enough out. I've got a chart and an article mixed together. It's a charticle. It's neither one thing nor the other. And design really, as I'm sure you know, is about take as much out as you can. And here it's just, it's just halfway house. So I was thinking... All right, well, you know, I've done some infographics and they seem to work and others don't seem to work. What is, it, what is it that makes something work in this domain? So I explored, I created an infographic, inevitably, of my thinking. I'm not saying this is the, the truth. I'm not saying this is any kind of, um, uh, you know, belief system of mine. I'm just simply, I was exploring my thinking. And I wondered if information design wasn't about a combination of these two worlds, the best of information. So integrity, the good data, solid research, you know, really good information, and interestingness. So it has a bit of charge around it. It's meaningful. It's relevant. You can relate to it in some way. The best of information combined with the best of design. So it has a form. It's beautiful. It's well-structured. It's lovely to look at. And function. It has a use, and it's fit for that purpose. So you're combining these things, perhaps, to make something that in the middle is a really successful information design. Um, I don't know if that's true or not, and we'll probably chat about it over some beers later. Uh, what's odd is that if you combine two of these elements, you get something quite interesting, but if you combine three, it breaks down. So if you combine function interesting, uh, you've got something that works, and it's quite interesting, but it, you, know, you haven't got the data yet, and it looks kind of... Uh, it's still an experiment. It's interesting. Okay, yeah, we can look at an experiment. But if you combine function interestingness and form, it's beautiful, it works well, and it's kind of got an interesting concept, but the data is lacking, then it's, it's kind of useless. You know, you need that data aspect. You need, like, two, uh, three elements seems to break it down. I don't know why. Also, there's a little mistake in this um, diagram. Can anybody spot it? Can anybody see why this diagram is an enormous cataclysmic fail? <laughs> I put it online. Sorry? I spelled what wrong? Did I? How do you spell? Thank you. <laughs> Not just because of that. Because the size don't relate to Yeah, the sizes don't relate, but there's something more fundamentally wrong with this. 
no, no, it's pretty unreadable, pretty unusable, pretty shit. <laughs> but there's even, more, there's even more deeper structural issue in this. Exactly. It's a fail because basically you can't do a four-way Venn diagram. Interestingness and form and in integrity and function don't overlap exclusively, so they're excluded from the diagram. As was pointed out to me by lots of very happy internet police when I uploaded it. <laughs> fail! I think it was even got on a fail blog. That's how enormously crap it is. Um, but, you know, it's a good way of thinking about it. So, but I think the biggest fail, perhaps, when you're playing with data is that you forget to play. Because data has a sort of rigidity and a grid-like aspects to it. And it, it kind of is serious. You feel like, oh, I can't play with it. I can't mess around with it. I can't sort of, ooh. I think you can. I think it's, a, like I said, it's a creative medium, and you should be able to play with it. So in that spirit, I've devised a little game made out of data. Let's see. It's the data viz quiz. I've done some diagrams, and I've taken some labels out, and I wondered if you can guess, especially you, if you can guess the answers. <laughs> All right, what rises and falls in relation to recession? It's a microeconomic fact. This, something unusual is a tracer for economic... Yes, very good. It is lipstick, because when you're feeling poor, you want to buy yourself a little treat. Not myself, but, you know, some other people might want to buy yourself a little treat, a little pep-up. It's a noted fact. What is the most popular breakfast cereal in the world? Cornflakes, muesli, or porridge? What's the yellow line here? Porridge? Universally porridge. Well, that's the first audience that ever guessed it. Porridge. What if I added toast? Around the world? Toast? Still porridge at the front? Let's have a look. Ooh! <laughs> Smackdown! <laughs> look at that. Domination. And you see the seasonal peaks every winter. <laughs> Bizarro. Oh, I can't, I can't add it on the fly, I'm afraid. <laughs> but I, no, thanks. Apple versus Microsoft. Who's winning by the end of the year, 2009? Microsoft? Winning at, sorry, this is, uh, thank you. Uh, I should explain, this is done with Google Insights, so it's tracking the intensity of these keywords over time online as a barometer of their... Oh, well, uh, <laughs> that changes things. Well, I mean, reveal your methodology. <laughs> uh, yes, it is Apple. Just... What about this? This is a big debate. Come on. Which one wins? Oh, a little pocket of PlayStation fans in the corner. It's actually Wii. Look at that. Surges in. And of course, Christmas, the Christmas peaks. All right, what's the one search term that gets higher than sex online? Google is quite high. Actually, it's two. So Facebook is one, yep. And what's the other one? Twitter, no. Oh, YouTube and Facebook. But what about Twitter? Is Twitter higher than sex or lower than sex? Is, tw is Twitter better than sex? <laughs> oh. oh, you know. What do you say? It's just off the scale, right? Let's have a look. Correct. Not a big tweeting nation, then. All right, last round. Awesome versus badass. Awesome. Let's see. Awesome. All right. Awesome versus cool. Cool? Cool. <laughs> the cool side of the room, let's see. Yeah. 
Okay, let's see what can be cool. Nice versus cool. Nice. Nice. Is nice be cool? Still cool. Let's have a look. Damn, you are good. All right. Ninja versus cool. Ninja. What are we saying? Still uncool. Damn. I will beat you. What's better than cool? There's one word that's better than cool. <laughs> Only in this country. In, in England, it's booze, beer. What's better? Sorry? Ep epic. That's a good one, actually. I haven't tried that. Epic. No, nobody says that. <laughs> YouTube, come on. YouTube beats cool every time. All right, so uh, just the spirit of play, basically. You can play with this stuff. Um, can I get a quick time check, please? Seven minutes to go. Uh, I've got a kind of section on how I do these images. Is that useful? Do people want to see that? Yeah? Okay, just quickly. Um, I work on paper mostly, initially. Uh, paper, obviously, sketches, scamps you can share with other people, and you don't get that digital filter coming in, and people are going, expecting it to be awesomely digital. Uh, this is the first image I did for my book, which ended up like this. It's about creationism and evolutionary theory and how they're all both divided into separate camps and fighting each other. Conspiracy world, you know, trying to track all the different conspiracies. Is there a structure in it? And this came out like this, because triangles are more conspiratorial in shape. <laughs> Um, and then, you know, just drawing really complex, a carbon cycle, really but, but, uh, annoyingly very hard to understand thing, which came out very illustratively and hopefully explains the relationship between carbon and rising carbon. So sketching all the time, um, often many drafts. I love this one. I did this one. This is about time travel. Time travel in film and TV, Back to the Future, Star Trek, and so on, you know, going forward. And back. I wondered if there was a shape to it. I wondered what it would look like. It's just kind of a geeky moment. So I did a sketch, and I was getting very excited. And we did digital, digital schematic, and you can see already there's a bit of a problem here. There's this huge cluster of time travel journeys in the 20th and 19th century, right? Because, you know, that's the cheapest way of doing it for broadcast. So how do we resolve that? Well, um, it's getting a bit hard to read, so let's, let's telescope it. Let's pull it. Uh, let's zoom in on the 20th century and then bunch up the other end so you're like somebody holding a piece of string. That might work. Um, but that no, didn't seem to work, so maybe more blueprinty, more curvy. No, no. So this, I think we're up to 14 drafts here. At this point, the designer left the project. Um, <laughs> uh, so I was thinking, and I was stuck here because I think there's something in this, but it's spaghetti. I got into spaghetti zone. So how do I fix this? Well, I'm thinking about um, what is time travel about? It's about sort of, it's chaotic, it's curves, it's timelines, it's moving through you know space. So maybe a curved system is better, right? Maybe it's being too rigid. So a little sketch, start drawing the curves, building it up, building it up, time travel, put it on dark. Sorry, yeah, maybe we can dim the lights just slightly. Sorry, it's a bit dark. Okay, so now it's something a bit more mad. It's still a bit spaghetti, but it's kind of, it's okay. And we're, again, we're holding the piece of string. And then we're zooming in, and that's kind of close to the final one. And the coolest thing is, when you lay this data out, you can see where potentially time travelers from different episodes or different shows would actually overlap to meet each other. So you've got like uh, Martin McFly from Back to the Future and a Star Trek crew fighting the Terminator around about 1984. Yeah. <laughs> that would be a cool film. I'd actually see that. <laughs> so again, you know, just playing around. This went through 38 drafts. Some, it's like whittling sometimes. You're trying to find the solution. You're trying to find the design that's going to really bring it and resonate with the theme. And, it, you know, and sometimes it just comes. Sometimes it's like that. Um, 
So I'll just wrap up um, just with an image that I really, really love. It's in my book, and it's been online, so you might have seen it. Because um, I love it when you, know, you can apply this approach to data and information, but you can also apply it to knowledge and concepts and the way in which we structure and look at the world, these sort of things that are in our minds already, but we might not notice them always. So this is um, a depiction of the left and right political spectrum. I'll, I'll zoom in a minute so you can see it. As it percolates down from government into society and culture, into the family, into individuals, into their beliefs, and then back round again. And it's a concept map, really. It's about it's mapping the structures and the ideas that we might have relative to these things. And I was fueled by my own curiosity because I wasn't quite sure about, about this stuff. But as a, a kind of journalist and a left-leaning guy, when I was designing this, I really wanted this side to be better than that side, basically. And I could feel that tugging on my, my process. I could feel like, you know oh, you know, if I could... But you can't, because it's easy, not only is it easily spotted, but you're creating a lopsided diagram, a broken image. So as part of my process, I had to honour this side. I had to really get into right-wing philosophy, really read all that stuff, and at the same time acknowledge uncomfortably that there was quite a lot of me in that that I didn't see before in order to create a balanced image. And that annoyed me, but it also excited me, because it felt like it wasn't too uncomfortable. By doing a diagram... Creating a diagram of ideas that might oppose me it wasn't that alarming. There was something about an image that allows you to hold conflicting ideas in your mind. It's something not as threatening when you're seeing an image. And that kind of feels like there might be some potential in here politically for people to be exposed to ideas because you're just seeing it, just pouring in, la-di-da, it's just an image. And, you know, there's something not so threatening about that. I'm just zooming in so you can see some of the structures in this how the family varies. These are the ideals, by the way. You know, there's a lot of subtlety in between, but I wanted to just illuminate the underlying principles. So that feels exciting to me. Um, in fact, information design just feels really exciting. It just um, it feels to me like design is about solving problems, and information design is about solving information problems. And it feels like we have a lot of information problems in our society at the moment, from overload and saturation to breakdown in trust, runaway skepticism, um, just people just not knowing stuff. And I think information design, data visualization, give us a really quick hit or an instant burst of clarity or just a clearing like we were saying before. Um, like this. I don't know if you've seen that. The Icelandic volcano. Uh, was it a boon to the world or a disaster for the aviation industry? If you look at the data, you see that it was emitting 150,000 tonnes a day. The grounded... The entire aviation industry emits 350,000 tons, roughly. So we were saving 206,000 tons every day. It was our first carbon-neutral volcano. <laughs> and that is beautiful. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you, Barry. Uh, we've definitely got time for questions, I think. So uh, we'll start there. Hi, Hi, my name is Leo Amane. Um, thank you for your presentation. Thank you. Really great. Um, I have the following questions. Do you use any automatic tools, and what's the relationship with, you know, doing it manually? I mean, I'm thinking, you, you, basically, you've got, for example, Excel and Visio, and you can feed them data and just see what comes out of it. Yeah. Do you use anything of that? No. No? It's all so manual? I do it all by hand. Um, I use Illustrator primarily as my main tool, and I might occasionally use the graphing tools, the shitty graphing tools you get in Illustrator to, if I've got a lot of data points. But 
Normally, I just literally do it all by hand. I, like the snake oil thing with the supplements, it was all plotted by hand. I gave myself a so, so you alphabetical. Have to, you have to do every ind individual point yeah. uh, map. And I feel that I, it's a bit, it's partly because I can't, there aren't many tools out there, and partly because I can't program, but also because you, you maintain a deeper connection to the data and the idea that you're trying to um, uh, express. And you can recognize often midstream when it's going wrong. So you don't have to, you're not, I don't rarely draw a whole thing and think, oh shit, I, you know, I get through it and I think, oh, oh, this isn't working. And so it becomes more of a process and, you know, like I was control. saying, more like painting, correcting along the way. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Hey, um, I had a question about how you deal with uh, with the sources you get. Yeah. Uh, for example, the the Twitter versus sex is Twitter better than sex? But also the vitamin story. Uh, it seems to all uh, the sources is a bit how many media attention there is, but that doesn't really say the the real value of it. True. That's a good point. Yeah. How um, do you deal with it? Uh, well. I think this, this, because these images are quite powerful in their own way and people are prepared to accept them on quite face value, I feel a sense of responsibility. So on my site and from my book, all the data I've used is all in Google Docs, completely open, so you can see the workings, you can see all the data sources, you can see all the metrics that have been used to create these diagrams. I think transparency has to go hand in hand with this kind of work. And uh, regards to sort of type of data, if I'm using like slightly subjective data like you're suggesting, then those images are more sort of frivolous or light-hearted. But the, for the serious uh, subjects like science-based stuff or stuff that's uh, culturally important or newsworthy, I always go to primary sources. I'm on, I still use the phone, and I still kind of you know, go to, back to studies wherever possible. That's, yeah. Cool. Thank you. Hi. Um, Hi yeah. I noticed that on uh, your chart about um, conser liberal and conservative, yeah. that uh, you, f you sort of flip the traditional colors um, that are associated with... The traditional colors? Yeah. Or like, the American colors? Uh, the American colors, yeah. I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, all. <laughs> um, my question is, do you ever, you know, do you do you come up against sort of like traditional notions of sort of color and form, and do you either try to incorporate those, or do you tend to um, sort of ignore those just as yeah. provocation? Or Yeah, no, fair point. I'm learning more about color, and that, doing that color and cultures image actually helped me a lot. Uh, I have a big, strong Western bias, I have a big UK bias. For that image, I actually created two versions, because I got so many peop American people getting pissed <laughs> off with me. In fact, America and Switzerland are the only people that have it this way around. Oh, the other way around. So I felt like I would go with the majority in that, in that yeah, it's, situation. It's quite interesting because when, as you were showing it and I was looking at it, I was really having a hard time wrapping my... I'm right. American, by the way. Yeah. I had a hard oh, really? time... <laughs> yeah. can, you, can you tell? <laughs> I had a really hard time wrapping my head around what it was actually saying because of the colors that were yeah. in place. So. Actually, maybe, yeah, it's an un uh, unconscious mindfuck there I was doing. You know, yeah. sort of <laughs> <laughs> what? Yeah. America's going, what? Oh, my God. <laughs> Why are you messing with us? <laughs> yeah, so I don't have a rule for color, really, but it's probably unconsciously. I'm choosing Western stuff just unconsciously, yeah. Thank you. Any more questions? Oh, Andre. This is probably more of a comment than a question, but first off, great stuff. I've always loved this kind of stuff. Cool, so the thanks. comment is, being American as well, and being 
extremely <laughs> frustrated with how people vote in the United States yeah. based on, I'm not even going to get into it. It's just crazy. Um, I'm kind of waiting for the day that either you or Ben Fry or somebody can build the tool that gives us the real story for when we vote. Because mm. I kind of think it really actually will make a big difference. Mm. And I'm just curious about, have you, have you done any that kind of thing? Have you looked into it? How the work that you do might actually impact at that scale? Um, no. The thing is, I struggle to be interested in politics because it, it seems like it's such a cartoon these days. And this, this in a way, kind of emphasizes that in many ways. But I was trying, this, I created this to try and understand myself and to open it up. And the comments I've received about it is that it's still biased and it's very unsubtle and it's quite simplistic and I'm preparing a revision of that. So I hopefully I'll be able to, as, as I understand the subject more and I get into it, the more I'll be able to create better diagrams that help other people. But at the moment I still feel a bit like a sort of sullen adolescent in relation to politics. Well, Just like, look forward mm. to uh, when you do. Thank you. <laughs> Any more? Oh, yeah, we've got one at the front. Hi. Hiya. Well, um, <clears throat> that is an interesting point. So I sense a very strong, s strong personal journey in, in what I'm seeing. And you, you uh -huh. were just referring to that. Does the um, uh, uh, fact that you are an auto autodidact in, t in terms of like information design um, yeah. something to do with it? Do you have a sense of that? Is that, sh is that shaping, is that influencing my... The fact that I've taught myself. Yes. How, how is that shaping my work? No. Yeah. Is there? Yeah, do you see a correlation between like like uh, um, um, what I? Or, or let, let me phrase it differently to make it a little more clear. Mm -hmm. So, I, everybody probably has in the head like why is he not like putting a bunch of, of programmers uh, together yeah. and then to start to play with questions. So like basically yeah. like to get inspired by data and then starting asking questions. Mm -hmm. But you ask the question first yeah. and then you, you travel into, through the question, uh -huh. making sense of the data but also to making sense for yourself. Yes. And this is a very, um, from my own experience, is a very, an approach that people do that don't do something by, by, um, with a, with a um, uh, formal education. Yes. So it's an informal way mm -hmm. to do it. And I yeah. find it very interesting because the results are way different in, on, on, on mm. a very subtle level than a lot of the formal trained information designers uh, produce. Right. So that maybe it was relating to that. And, uh, maybe I answered the question myself. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, <laughs> anyway, but it is maybe. Yeah. Oh, uh, I think what, what I, I'm not sure that it's my um, self-taughtness, perhaps, that influences my work so much as I'm a journalist. I consider myself a journalist more than I'm a designer, and I feel like I, I just feel like I'm trying to merge those two things. And I think many designers perhaps don't have journalistic training or, or say to themselves they're not journalists, which I don't believe personally. Because I think anyone can be a journalist; it's just a set of skills like anything else. So I think perhaps that might be yeah. the unusual thing. And I'm also because I've got the freedom, I'm just because I'm able to do those two things simultaneously. I don't necessarily have to negotiate with anyone else to get the end result. I'm sort of doing it in myself. As regards participation, you're actually, that's what my next book is, a completely participatory book. It's going to be the first completely crowdsourced book ever, oh, hopefully. Okay. So it's going to, hopefully I'm going to be able to, and I'm going to submit my own ideas so that whatever process that we come up with to making this book, I don't know how we're going to do it, and then invite people to be a part. Sweet. And we'll generate it. 
Yeah, cool. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Do we have time for uh, yeah. any, many, any more I'm, questions? I'm aware that I'm keeping you all from beer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's one back here. Hi. Um, Hi. Cool. Infographics. Nice. Hi. But uh, I don't know who, but someone said there's lies, damned lies, and then there's statistics. Uh, you're drawing on statistics largely, mm -hmm. uh, I assume. Yep. Um, but also the way you sometimes represent stuff could could falsely lead people. It's well known that a pie diagram, for example, when it's 3D, mm. that people perceive the, the parts that are in front as bigger yep. than they really are, even if you put the percentages yep. right next to it. How do you choose and ameliorate for those problems? How do you choose between types of infograms, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, and you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, you can lie with statistics and you can really lie with visualized statistics because they have this kind of impact. Um, yeah, very much so. Uh, again, uh, always tied to this transparency thing. So uh, all the data is there. You can see my workings. Often I keep versions. So in this, on different sheets in, this, in the spreadsheets, you can see how I've arrived at the data. All the source, every image is source labeled, has a link to the data in it. Uh, I use one single image that's hosted on Amazon Cloud so that when people, so people can duplicate it around the web and that means that if any data is wrong or there's a mistake needs to be made, I can instantly change it and it instantly ripples. And they're the only mechanisms I've been able to come up with for countering certainly mistakes. As for my own bias, I rely on um, the many people that comment on these images, and often angrily, but often brilliantly, because if you separate off the anger, often there's some a very important thing that I've missed or um, a, you know important point. So I, I constantly revise my stuff and try and check against my own biases, but that's as much as I can do, I think. Are there any more questions, or can I just ask one? Uh, yeah, it's a sure. bit, it's about a personal one, really. Uh, I'm, my infographics are famously bad. Uh, and uh, I'm looking at these totally jealously. How, how much time do you spend in general on, on, on this? Uh, like a day. A day? Just all day. All day. And <laughs> it's absolutely consuming. Okay. And when yeah. you get into, when you start on a diagram, or you, and like I was saying, whittling down the truth, you get that, bit, that fiery impulse, and you want to finish it, you want to kind of get it down. So it does generally take me over. So. You know, sometimes I can bosh something like this. Obviously, that took, you know, 12 minutes. But uh, more complex ones take hours and days. Yeah, it's quite a bit. I'm quite busy. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank for, you. For, for inspiration for me. It's been Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, ladies Thank and you. gentlemen. Thank you. Dave McCandles. Brilliant questions. <laughs>